Welcome to Fertility Now. I'm really happy to have Monica Moore back on today's episode. As you know, Monica is a nurse practitioner and has a master's in nursing. She's a great voice in IVF nursing and reproductive advocacy. She's the founder of Fertile Health. She works as a nursing educator, health coach, and consultant. And hey, Mon, how's it going? Good, Dr. Richland. I'm so excited to be here. Um, we, I was kind of laughing because our last episode, we were like, wonderful, get 30 minutes out of that. But an hour and four minutes later, we're still talking. We, so We talked a lot. And actually, in a couple, we have a couple questions from some people. Um, what's really interesting for both of us is we have National Infertility Awareness Week, which is April 18th through the 24th. It's a national movement kind of trying to open up the discussion about reproduction and people struggling trying to family build real serious stuff you agree yeah and i just think you know the word awareness is so key like whatever you decide to do in terms of your own family building um venture is is fine but we just want to get it out there that there's certain things that can be said that are well-meaning um that you know can be offensive to people and uh when people are on fertility journeys they might be a little bit more you know, uncomfortable, they might need a little bit more support. So just having one week out of the year is probably not enough. Right. Um, but even if it can raise awareness and a couple other people or reach a couple other people, um, whether it's clinicians or non-clinicians, uh, you know, we'd be so grateful if, if that works out. Yeah. Like you said, empowering people and talking about things and really for everyone to realize that for us, we want everyone to have a chance to family build. We support everyone who wants a family build and if they're having any difficulties because, you know, Infertility affects one in eight people. So well, it's I was just going to say that and just normalizing it. What else do we know that affects one in eight people? You know, it's, it's very prevalent. You brought up a really interesting point. You know, breast cancer is very common. And uh, we talk about that a lot. And reproduction and reproductive difficulties, we need to help people and give them love and support if they're struggling. It's so important. Yes. What's really interesting is, is Monica and I both feel, because we've talked about this, is that remember there are specialists out there. There's people like Monica, nurse educators and coaches, and, and there's people like me, reproductive endocrinologists. So remember, if you're trying to get pregnant or you're struggling or you're in a relationship where you need a little boost, guess what? Reproductive physicians are out there. And you know, ASRM will talk about if you're over 35 and you've been trying six months to come in, or if you're under 35 trying a year, or if there's any issues that you think could be causing a delay in you getting pregnant, see a reproductive endocrinologist. Um, you've worked with a ton of Aries, Monica. It's so great that patients are coming in to see us all and getting help. Yeah. And you know, here's the thing. If you're not sure if you should come in, you should come in because I'm sure in your experience too, I've never had a patient come in and say, you know what? I think I came in too soon. Right. I've only had people say, I wish I would have found out about this three years ago, five years ago, hopefully not, but 10 years ago. I've never had somebody say, this was too much information for me right now. I've had people come in and say, I'm not ready to do this, but now I'm armed with the information that I need to make a, a good decision. But I've never had, I've had many, many people be like, gosh, why am I just hearing about, I should have done X, Y, Z then you just are, it's not that it can't happen for you, but your choices can be a little bit more limited at that point. Right. I think, I think it's interesting. We've known each other a long time and even more now at any time you can come in and talk to someone because a lot of our patients, they want to know the reproductive potential. They want information. They may want an AMH. They may want to talk about egg freezing. They may be in a relationship where they're going to use donor egg or donor sperm, and they just want to talk and, and get ready for the future. So talk about it. It's easy. I also think for a long time, and I'm happy that this is somewhat less, but there's a stigma associated with infertility um, and going through an infertility cycle. There's a feeling of lack, a feeling that something is wrong with you or your partner or both, um, that maybe you're not trying hard enough. Maybe you did something, quote unquote, wrong in your past. And so anything that we can do to to, to kind of break that stigma and, and really normalize this is just another thing that's going on that we can manage and hopefully help you with. Most families, um, depending on how far they're willing to go along their child, um, their family building journey, will be able to create a family in some way. Right. Right. Um, that way differs according to what they desire and their age and you know any ethical or religious considerations. But I think it's really important to know that the earlier you talk to somebody, the more options you have and the more expansive those options are. Right. It, you're right. It, I say this to patients all the time. If you if you want a family build, you can basically do it. And like you said, coming in earlier is so important because as we know, egg supply, women are born with, born with their egg supply for a lifetime and, and you don't want to wait. Yeah. 
So the other thing is, is some diseases progress over time. Endometriosis, fibroids. So if we can catch these earlier and manage them with medications or medical interventions, it might be as simple as a birth control pill, then we can maybe keep that disease progression from managing or delay that disease progression, which also might give you more options. Right. So we're basically saying be proactive. So Mon, we got questions after lap last episode. Yes, I got some too. I'm so excited. People so, listen to us. So I'm going to throw them at you because you're always the best at answering everything. How are people going to feel after their retrieval? Um, you know, the day of, there's still some residual anesthesia. And so I think we, I kind of mentioned this last time, you have a lot of amnesia, which is normal. Yeah. That's the same thing over and over again. You feel like you're just a little bit out of it. Um, and uh, when you get home later that day, you continue to feel that way. And as we go in with the retrieval needle, and you would know this because you're the director of surgery at our center, as we uh, go into each follicle, and we do, regardless of size, and we extract the egg and the follicular fluid comes out, that follicle or that ovary then has to heal. And before it heals, it fills with inflammatory um, process agents and substances, and that's normal healing, and it swells. And that swelling can create some discomfort, especially for already potentially swollen, maybe twice their size ovaries. So the two to five days after the retrieval, I find are uh, much more uncomfortable for people. Not terribly uncomfortable in terms of pain, but bloating, um, unable to button their pants. Maybe their belly feels um, a little bit like there's no room in there, you know, for anything else. And so we tell people to really uh, be gentle with themselves and be kind in terms of activities. Um, and to really just listen to their body in terms of, you know, what they think they can do and can't do. For a lot of people, if they overdo it, they start to get pretty crampy. Right. And that to me is uh, a hard stop. When another question I got was, when can people go back to work and, you know, get back to some of their normal activities? What would you couch them on? Yes, I hear that too. It really depends on what you do for a living. Um, and it depends on your, how difficult it is for you to get time off. So I have, there's a few, I have a couple of patients right now who are teachers and they had to take a lot of days off for various reasons. And it was actually more stressful for them to take more days off after the retrieval than it was to take the one day off and to go into work and modify their activities. And they told a couple of close friends or support people at work who were happy to kind of cover them in terms of getting up and down or running around on a playground, let's say. Um, but I def, I, I think it really depends on your particular situation. If you feel really uncomfortable, we want to know about it. We really do want you to rest. As we mentioned before, we don't want the ovary to be very heavy and pull and tug and potentially twist on that ligament that suspends it. That's not meant to bear that weight of that burden of that ovary. And that's what we really worry about. So we want to try to prevent that and also just to kind of help you heal a little bit more organically and slowly. So there's no real true indicator, I would say to go with your body. But for some people, they may go back to work because they need to, even though they're a couple days away from feeling that they're truly healed. And as long as you take it easy, listen to your body and contact us proactively, then that's okay too. I mean, I definitely think the vast majority of people go to work the next day. But like you said, they take it easy, some Tylenol. And then we got a question about, and you kind of answered it, when we do retrievals, do we go into all the follicles? And we do. because there could be an egg in there. And, you know, I kind of feel like if a follicle is 15 millimeters or larger, when we go into it, we're likely to get a mature egg. But uh, we go after everything because we want to give you the best option, get as many eggs and see what the lab says and if they're mature and see if we can make exactly. them. Better. And the other thing we talked about last episode is the follicle diameter is really an, is, is an um, indirect measurement. And um, we're pretty good at measuring follicles in the maturity. So, you're just never never sure until we see this fertilization results the following day, how many mature. Plus, those small follicles are often buggers or culprits with hyperstimulation. They continue to make hormones. They continue to grow. So we really want to remove them also to protect you from um, a moderate to severe ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And I, I guess it's probably a good time to mention that everybody is mildly to moderately hyperstimulated. And that's what one of your consent forms, but it's called controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. It has to be because you're not used to make, you're used to making one follicle a month uh, or having one follicle be um, mature. And we want many to be mature um, in order to account for that attrition rate that we mentioned last time. And so we are hyperstimulating you. What we get concerned with is when it becomes moderate to severe. 
um, which is very low, uh, very low percentage chance of that happening. But you will be hyperstimulated, and like, and that was that what that consent form says, and it needs to be controlled. Right. So, like you said, by definition, we're stimulating you, so you're going to feel it, um, but we don't want too much. So there's like that fine balance. Right. Um, so retrieval happens. Our patients are home. I, a lot of patients say they feel crampy at home, but um, like you, like we both said, with with time, you know, the next day or the days after, they're going to get better and better. If they're not feeling great, they'll they'll let us know. We get a lot of questions about how many eggs I have at retrieval, Monica. I'm just going to throw something out. I, I think a good no, you know, I would say the world average of eggs retrieved maybe 12 or 11, 12. I I could be off here and there, but it really depends upon everyone's individual ovaries, their ovarian reserve, their AMH, their egg. Their, you know, exactly. how many, their ovarian reserve and their egg quality. And I think it just depends patient to patient. We want to get as many eggs as we can get. Right. And people with polycystic ovarian syndrome that are older um, may have more eggs. We don't know about the, the, the quality of them. The quality is still, as far as I know, the one um, measurement of quality really is age, but we can get a higher quantity. We also may have people that are that are younger that we don't get as many eggs as we think we should with that age. And this is where we get into the everybody's a human being, right? So we can't right. compare everybody that's the same age with each other, but we can't even compare that person to themselves because they're, it's, it's also cycle dependent. Um, and we do the best we can do to get as many eggs that kind of grow together at the same time. Um, but how many that you're going to get that cycle is very difficult for us to predict. I think the best predictor of that cycle is how many we see by ultrasound when you come in that particular day for something that may be called a suppression check or a baseline check. Um, we count how many small follicles you have, but there's it's not a three-dimensional ultrasound. So there's things hiding behind each other. So it, that's also not, but those are the ones that we're, we're kind of following. And they're probably the closest measurement that we have that cycle that we can rely on. Yeah, I love the, uh, like you said, the suppression check and counting the small follicles and also throwing in there, like you said, age and AMH, that hormone, anti-malarian hormone, which also is an indicator of how someone's going to stimulate and how many eggs they're likely to get. I think you made an interesting point. Someone who's in their early 30s who may not get a ton of eggs, but guess what? What they make what embryos they make could be really good because they're young. It may not be, I have all these embryos, but guess what? I have a few and those are good because I'm younger. So that could happen too. Right. I think we always, we find it easy to correlate quality and quantity. And in many cases that is, that's correct. But the, the, the quantity really is the AMH and the basal antropological count that correlates. But in terms of the quality, it's really age. And so I think that we expect them to go together, but it doesn't always. And that's where we take into account that particular individual and what we can expect from that person that month with the medications that they were given. Right. And like you kind of quickly alluded to, if we don't get where we want on a cycle and we don't get as many eggs as we kind of thought and we have to do it again, you know, another month, people will do different another month, cycle to cycle variability, maybe change some of their medications and, and they potentially could do different that next month, which is good hope. Right. And we learned a little bit about them from a previous cycle. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. we learned that they recruit eggs sooner than we think. And when they, that happens, we end up kind of chasing after them. So then we need to pause that previous cycle. That's not something that we would normally know or do, but we know now how to pause people previous cycle. Maybe they need a little bit of a kickstart. So they need a, a precursor or a substrate to making estrogen and making follicles that we would give them that previous cycle that we wouldn't have known to do that before. So we make, we give, we get their body to kind of start making this building block of these hormones. And then we, in people who maybe have a low AMH, then we hit them with the stimulating medications so they have their body's own hormones and then the stimulating medications to give them the best outcome that we have for that particular month. Right. Basically, what you're saying is we have tricks. We have a tool. We have we lots have of tools box. in the toolbox. Yeah, lots toolbox. of tools in the toolbox. Yes. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I said that. I said that sounds interesting. Tools in toolbox. And you know what? And 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 we pull them out and we use them, which is really cool. So we get eggs. Uh, they're handed off to the embryologist. They, at that point, you know, the eggs are removed with the 17-gauge needle uh, from the ovary when you're sleepy, and the eggs are in a little container, um, a little tube, small tube, and those eggs are looked at under microscope by embryology, and they're basically trimming the outside nurse cells, these cumulus cells. And basically, at that point, they're either going to put egg and sperm together, 
which called conventional insemination and put 50,000 sperm with an egg and let the best sperm get in, or they're going to do ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Right. And a lot, of, you know, um, I think I'm going to throw you for a twist, Monica. I think one day it'll be interesting if ICSI gets a Nobel Prize. It's amazing what it's done and how it's helped people who have really low sperm counts and sperm that can't swim and can't fertilize an egg. Interesting. Right. Right. So those cumulus cells that you mentioned are these cells that surround an oocyte or egg, and they provide the nourishment for the egg. But they also occlude, they keep us from seeing if there's a, what's called a polar body to know if the egg's mature. And they really keep us seeing the egg itself from seeing. So we either keep them on and just trim them, as you said, in order to put them together with sperm. And the sperm sit there for a little while in the lab because there's a couple processes that need to happen that make them capable of fertilizing an egg. So normally these processes happen in the female reproductive tract, but now we need them to happen in specially made media in the lab, uh, these kind of pre-fertilization or pre-fertilizable processes. So that's happening. So there's, after the retrieval, there's a lot of kind of things that the embryology lab's doing, a lot of time that has to go by um, before we can put everything together. So the embryologist is looking at the follicular fluid under the microscope, putting the eggs there, deciding if we the semen analysis or the semen samples given that day, based on that semen analysis, we think that according to the, that total modal sperm count, so not just one aspect of it, but all aspects of it, right. are we giving this particular couple the best chance or individual to have an egg fertilized? And if the embryology lab feels and the physicians that we can do regular insemination, which is the putting the sperm and egg together in the dish, just trimming the cumulus cells, then we do that. But if they feel like ICSI is needed, and ICSI could be needed for a couple of indications, but one that we mentioned is a semen analysis that shows that maybe the best chance of fertilization is being proactive with ICSI. Um, And maybe the sperm uh, doesn't have a lot of what's called normal forms. They have a head, neck, and tail defect. And what I want to mention is that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong chromosomally with the sperm. It means that left to its own devices, it may not be able to enter into the egg. So once we help it into the egg with ICSI, it should function just like normal sperm. So, and and so that's one thing that a lot of couples ask me if if there's not a lot of quote unquote normal sperm, does that mean if a baby's made that it would be abnormal? And the answer is no. There's no genetic issue with that. There's an issue with basically how well and how completely and how easily it would be to get into the egg, and that's what we we worry about. That so then we would strip with ICSI those cumulus cells out, because what happens with that is as you know, is it keeps more than one sperm from getting into the egg. So once we strip those cells, we can, we would do ICSI with them because we need to be able to see those cumulus cells, like I said, are helpful, but they occlude our vision. And then we do ICSI and we just do one sperm at a time, uh, one sperm per egg. And then the next day we would know the fertilization, whether it was ICSI or insemination. Yeah. So you, you said it beautifully. Um, so, you know, at that point now we have egg and sperm, either by conventional insemination or by ICSI, and they're put into the incubator, which is a very specialized environment. It's monitored closely. It has special gases um, that are flowing to the incubator. It's individualized per patient. We're not mixing people's stuff in incubators. I think that's another fear. Yeah. You know, these are are egg and sperm small-labeled dishes that are watched very closely. Um, and, you know, it's a very, very important moment of safety where these embryos are housed. And they're in incredible incubators that are just, they're alarmed and watched. It's really neat. Yeah. Really neat. Then basically, you know, in the lab when we have sperm and we have a fresh sample that's coming in, let's say we're going to have a couple who's going to use a fresh sample. It's prepared by the andrologists after identification, obviously, and they're doing what's called a gradient. And kind of at the end of the day, they're taking the sperm, they're spinning it, centrifuging it. And in the at the end of the, the centrifuge, there's going to be a pellet of good modal sperm. So they're going to separate good sperm from debris and white cells and get that good sperm. And that good sperm is then going to be used for ICSI if they want, or for conventional insemination to put egg and sperm together to get the best sperm around that egg. Really neat. Right. Right. Now, now for using frozen sperm from donor sperm or a partner that has frozen sperm, that sperm is just going to basically be thawed and then we'll do ICSI. So another important question, and we talked last time kind of what is it that we don't know what to ask. 
and I always uh, talk to clients about this, is the day of the sperm production for a male partner or partners. Um, do Have you ever had trouble producing before? Because this feels like a big day. Right. And um, we've had a handful of people that when they go to produce sperm that day, it can be very stressful. It can feel very unnatural, as comfortable and private as we make it. And so when I'm discussing with people about the retrieval, I would say at the day of the semen analysis, which everyone had a semen analysis, was it difficult for you? Was that stressful for you? You know, this is where we need to take the shame out of that and really normalize it. This is not a normal environment to go into a doctor's office and produce this. But if it was, that's helpful to know. Because if we, we don't want to happen as a day of the retrieval, because we can easily have a sperm sample frozen for backup if that particular day is difficult. And I can tell you in my experience, and you can tell me your experience, almost every time we have the sample frozen as backup, that man is able to produce that day. Right. It's just right. a, 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 like a deep breath of, I have this as backup. I have this as a cushion. But to not have that cushion or not have that conversation um, has led us some, to some some dicey situations that all were fine in the end, but may have been prevented um, and kept everyone from being stressed by having that very simple conversation. Right. To have the conversation, if there's a potential issue, like you said, we can freeze the sperm and then if they can't produce, and they usually can, we can thaw that sperm and create embryos. And, and basically in our center, using frozen sperm or fresh sperm, we do just fine. Right. We, we just need to know that. We just we need just to know need to in know. advance. So, you know, I think it's it's sort of like, it's one of these embarrassing things. Like everybody comes home and it's like, what's for dinner? And they don't talk about, you know, what ended up happening that day. So I think right. that day is like, how was it? Right. Was that stressful for you? Yeah. Um, and if so, we, you know, it's back to the toolbox, right? We have things that we can do as long as we know in advance. And then the other thing, our toolbox is if the gentleman didn't have sperm frozen as backup and couldn't prepare on that day, we can freeze all the eggs. Yes. And then down the road, uh, thaw the eggs and put sperm together. Sometimes we use Viagra. We have different tools, but we'll, at the end of the day, we can get past this. Right. And I think that what we're really trying to illustrate here is just to have an ongoing conversation with each other and with us. Really nothing is off limits with us. As you know, we've talked about in the past, we've heard everything. We've experienced everything. We are not, with no question is too small, too big, too embarrassing. Um, and, and in fact, it, it, it can make couples closer during this sort of artificial, what feels unnatural time to be like, how did it go? Because then it feels like you guys are kind of in this together. Right. And it, it takes a little bit of that discomfort out of it. You know what I was thinking when you were talking about that, Monica? What's so great is, is you, you want to be in a center. And most centers are really accommodating, really cool. We've seen so many scenarios. And everyone there is just pushing towards you being successful. So like you said, anything that happens, we're going to work around it and make it smooth and comfortable. It's easy right. for us. Right. So I know this is an area you love. I know you love embryology. So I'll kind of start off. We get egg and sperm together. And then the next day we want to see if they fertilized. So what happens is, is the embryologist will look at egg and sperm, look at the embryos the day one, the next day after they're put together and see if they have fertilized. They, they look under beautiful, incredible microscopes to see if we have fertilization. And fertilization means there's two pro-nuclei inside male and female nuclei in two polar bodies on the outside. Just in general, do we have fertilization? And then, Mon, we have day three. Jump into day three. Yes. Yeah, so, the, so the two pro-nuclei, which you might hear a word 2PN, is called a zygote. It's the earliest form of an embryo. And what that does is it starts this rapid series of cell division um, where the cells start to grow a little bit slowly, and then they start to grow exponentially once they get past day three. So the fertilization result day, you would get something like how many fertilized normally. There is abnormal fertilization, um, and we don't end up using those embryos because they um, don't end up being a healthy uh, pregnancy or baby. So the normally fertilized embryos are what we're starting with. So here's where we get to the attrition rate. So we have the follicles that we retrieved at retrieval. The next day, how many of those were mature? Because we can only try to fertilize mature ones. Um, if they're immature, they didn't go through the first stage of cell division that allows them to be fertilizable. So now we have mature. Then we have out of those mature, how many fertilize normally? And now they need to grow in their cozy kind of little incubator drawer. So on day three, we might see eight to 10 cells, eight to 12 cells. And what we look for is we look under the microscope is do, are there kind of clean lines within the cells? Is there not a lot of debris? You know, we have these textbook pictures 
of of embryos that we're like ho- kind of hoping to see. And but this is starting to be rapid cell division. And then the day four and day five, the cell division is so rapid that it doesn't make sense to look at them because the cells are kind of morphing into these structures because of the rapid cell division that doesn't help for us to further qualify it. So you usually don't, that information is not helpful until it gets right. to blastocyst. And the blastocyst is a five, six, seven day embryo, the cell stage at which an embryo um, is can implant. And that's the cell stage at which we transfer embryos back. That's the cell stage at which we biopsy. At that stage, we've had cell growth and then something called differentiation where instead of just all these cells, eight to 10 cells that look exactly the same, now we have an inner cell mass that becomes the early baby. We have a blastocyst, a cavity, and then we have a trophectoderm, which becomes the early placenta. And later we'll differentiate into two separate layers. But that early placenta or trophoblast cells, that is where when we do PGD-A uh, or um, genetic testing, where we sample the cells. We sample the cells from the early placenta, not from the baby part of the blastocyst. So we have, we have 500 or so cells. So when we sample three to five, that's that's a tiny portion as opposed to sampling cells on day three when we had eight to 10 cells. So we have to get these embryos to blastocyst. And I know you and I talked to this before, not all of them will go to blastocyst. And I know for you, this is a very, this is a conversation that you have to have with people that's very difficult. So how do you handle it's, that? It's very difficult. I think you went through embryology beautifully. And, and like you said, there's a huge attrition. And from day three to day five, that eight cell, nine cell, 10 cell embryo going to a blastocyst, which is that differentiating embryo, we have a lot of attrition. And so not every day three embryo is going to make us a blastocyst, which we can transfer fresh or biopsy. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's, it can be heartbreaking. You know, we usually get, we usually get good fertilization, good day three embryos, and then we always have a drop off day three to day five. And you know, as a physician on this side of the desk, you and I can't control what happens in the incubators. And so all we can do is set them up for a great stimulation, a great retrieval, a great pre-pregnancy, great mindset, great health. But then when they're in the incubator, they are kind of autopiloted, you know? Um, right. We're just following along. And, you know, a common along. question that clients have is, well, would they have been better inside? Would they have stayed and remained inside me? which is called in vivo versus what we do in vitro. And the fact is we would never have an answer to that. Yeah, in, no. in humans, we can't study what would normally happen inside you. We might be able to do animals, but not in humans. And it's not always applicable from animals. So we don't know. But the likelihood is that what ended up happening in the lab, which we keep at a very specific body temperature, is what would have happened inside. And that there is a big attrition in, in terms of the eggs that are going to continue to grow. There is an expectation, even though... It might be frustrating for us that some will not continue to grow to blast, particularly as ovarian reserve goes down, whether due to age or due to other factors. Absolutely. And so but it's very upsetting and disappointing, even though this is what happens uh, naturally. Right. And and I, I we talk about it up front, but it's still disappointing. Like you said, we're not efficient reproducers when we're trying on our own if pregnancy rates are around 20%. But then when we get egg and sperm in the lab and watch the performance you know, not, and not every egg is going to make us an embryo. Some couples are going to do better than others. Um, and sometimes we learn about couples, we get eggs, we get sperm, we don't have embryos. And we know that we really have an issue either with egg or sperm. And it gives us a lot of information also. That they and need. that's where IVF is diagnostic too. So all yeah. these tests that we do tell us, the semen analysis tells us that this sperm should fertilize an egg. The saline sonogram or the water test tells us that this uterus should hold a pregnancy. You know, the other things tell us these ovaries should make a follicle, but until it really happens, we don't know that. All it's telling us is that this test is a screening test to say this should work. But until we get into the lab, we really don't know. But we do find out really some nuances and complexities of care that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah, you and I both feel about, you know, IVF being diagnostic and therapeutic. Therapeutic, we want embryos, we want to put one in you and start your family. But diagnostically, we sometimes find out that people will look great on paper. My AMH, my FSH, everything's good, but then egg and sperm together, and I we don't make good embryos. And we don't always know why. And here's the thing, I, I think we also get, and we do too, as clinicians caught up in, in numbers in, in absolute numbers. So we see this number go down and we really want really five blastocysts, the blastocyst stage, but our, the recommendation is, and I know we're going to talk about this to transfer one 
that one blastocyst. Right. And maybe there'll be others to freeze, depending on if we had them PGS tested, how many other blastocysts. But the goal is to get to one. So to have the other ones is really a cushion. But if you have one blastocyst that looks good and is and is um, euploid or chromosomally normal, as a normal number of chromosomes, that is our whole goal, right. even if there's been nutrition in the meantime. So those numbers are nice, but I have seen many, many people who only have one euploid blastocyst at the end of a cycle get pregnant. Me too. And that, that is our goal, even though it's really nice and it feels reassuring to have those numbers. If you don't, it's not necessary to have a good outcome that cycle. Right. This day and age, people want multiple embryos now before they start family building. And sometimes they don't have that. And if you have one beautiful embryo, like you said, you and I have patients together who do just great. They have one embryo, they put it in, boom. Let's, let's, let's quickly make some comments here. So a lot of our patients are doing fresh embryo transfers, right? Like Monica said, on day five, beautiful differentiated blastocysts. We do a transfer, we freeze the rest for another pregnancy down the road. And if we need to use those frozen embryos, we thaw one and put it into the uterus on a frozen embryo transfer cycle, and they do just great. But we also have PGT where we are, like Mon said, we're biopsying some of the trophectoderm, three to six cells of the trophectoderm, and we want to find out, is that embryo 46 chromosomes or you? Employed, basically. And remember, not every embryo is going to be 23 pairs of chromosomes. Tw 23 comes from sperm, 23 egg, 46 human being. But most of the time, as women get older, as the egg quality gets older, we have errors and we don't get 46 chromosome embryos. So by doing PGT, we can test embryos on day five, six, or seven, and then freeze them. And then a week and a half later, tell you, okay, of the embryos we biopsied, these are the ones that are normal. And sometimes we find out none of them are normal, but we need to right. know. Yeah. And we talked about last time when we talked about CoQ10, how the cytoplasm, the mitochondria, the energy producer ages. But we also need to realize is meiosis, which is cell division for sex cells, egg and sperm. There's two times in female reproduction when it's paused or stopped. And so, um, and what resumes it is when, uh, is, uh, is ovulation and then when egg and sperm meet. And so, if the first time these eggs have been sitting around, let's say somebody's going through and they're 40, these eggs have been paused in meiosis for 40 years, then they're triggered and expected to just act like somebody's eggs that have been paused in meiosis for 20 years. So now we have eggs that have been sitting in meiosis for 40 years and the machinery that is, is incredibly important for cell division to take place that's also aged. And right. so this is one of the reasons why aneuploidy or an abnormal number of chromosomes is so prevalent as we as we get older. And so that's really important to know. So the way that PGD works too, I think is is important is when we take those, a lot of people are like, where's our embryo? Is it our blastocyst? We, the, the blastocyst is with us the whole time. So we, um, we give the blastocyst identifying information, let's say number one, three, seven, and nine are blastocysts that we are biopsying. And then we send those trifectoderm cells to a specialized lab and then we freeze those blastocysts and they are kept with us. The only thing that leaves are those three to six cells that are biopsied where they go to the lab. And then we get results back and it says number one, three, and nine are euploid or chromosomy normal. So seven is, is not, and that would not be an embryo then available for transfer. It may have one less or one too many or multiple less or too many chromosomes called um, monoploid, monoploid or tri. Monoploid? Why am I thinking that? Tri oh, monosomy. Monosomy or trisomy. And those um, are usually not consistent with, with life. So that would either result in not getting pregnant or, or a miscarriage. So we don't transfer those back. But the blastocysts are with us the whole time. And we get the results and they're here available for you. The only thing that's in transit are those couple of cells. Those cells. And so we get back the result. Like you said, are they euploid or aneuploid? Um, and you made a beautiful discussion on aneuploidy and non-disjunction. It was, it was really, really cool. Um, we also know, we'll know the gender. So when we call you and tell you of the embryos we biopsied, um, are they 46 or not? We can also tell you the gender if you want, or we can hide it. And it's also at this stage where our patients who are coming through who have known genetic medical conditions from their carrier screening. So let's say they're carriers of the same medical condition, for example, like cystic fibrosis. They're both carriers of CF and they know it up front and we know it up front. Then when we test that little piece of trophectoderm, we can find out three things. The gender, if it's 46 chromosomes, and also if that embryo has CF, if it's affected, it'll be 25% of the embryos. Unaffected, 25% of the embryos. And carriers like 
the parents 50% um, chance of being a carrier. And then we can put in an embryo that's either a carrier or unaffected. And it's also euploid. Really cool, huh, Monica? Yes. Really amazing. It's amazing. Yes. I just, it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible where we're going from the stimulation to eggs, the embryos. Now we're going to find out if they're genetically normal. So Monica, you know, we have, let's kind of pull it from here. We have these frozen embryos and we're going to put them in. We can either do it in a known medicated cycle, a cryoestrogen cycle, or a, you know, a natural cycle. Walk us through a little bit from your side on a frozen embryo transfer cycle. How do you see it? So our default or standard is using medications. And that's just because it's easier for us to control what's going on. And it's easier for you (laughs) when we can do that. We're not having you come in all the time and, you know, running around and making changes. You can actually plan your life a little bit. So really with the ovaries stay quiet in a frozen embryo transfer where you're getting the embryo back, the thought embryo back, your ovaries are not doing anything at all. So regardless of your ovarian function, it doesn't matter for frozen embryo transfer cycle. So that the ovaries stay quiet. All we need is your uterus to respond to medication. And the first response is to grow or proliferate with estrogen. And we will check to make sure it grows at a certain uh, to a certain amount. And it has a certain pattern that we like to see by ultrasound. Both of those uh, research has told us um, can be helpful in terms of uh, implantation take place. If it's, if it's thin or this pattern is not achieved, that might be detrimental. And then we would trap the cycle. And again, we go back to our toolbox analogy, pull out one of our many, many, many tools to, to deal with that. Once the um, lining looks good by ultrasound, then we start you on progesterone. And here is where um, the, the shots in the butt come in. And so we often have this question because some centers use uh, vaginal progesterone only. We use progesterone progest- for frozen embryo transfer cycles. We use injectable progesterone and alternating usually vaginal. Um, depending on what kind of cycle you're doing. <clears throat> the reason, so it is not wrong for centers that do vaginal progesterone only. There's a lot of studies that out that show that vaginal progesterone affects the level at the uterus like it should, right. even though it doesn't give us good blood results because it's not meant to. The problem for us is it's very difficult when somebody has a low progesterone level to just say that's fine by their blood. Even if the studies are telling us it's okay, we're so conservative and we have such a vested interest in your success. And we know we sort of, you know, within reason can't overdo progesterone that we really need some sort of way of measuring if the progesterone is getting where it needs to be. So we really, although there's been many times we have tried to do to patient or people discomfort to not do progesterone injections, we just always seem to go back to them because we just get too nervous otherwise. Um, and it's such a gold standard. It is a gold. We know exactly. It's been around for a long time. You know, we know that it works. Right. Um, but we do try to alternate sometimes if we can or, or, or double up. And we, we have to, because remember, if your ovaries are quiet and that's what's producing the progesterone, we need to, in fact, function as that ovary producing progesterone to, to the placentic extent. Right. So we want that estrogen and progesterone. We want a nice thick lining and get that embryo in there for that embryo to go against the wall and oppose it and then grow into the wall and make a beautiful pregnancy. So, you know, during those frozen embryo transfer cycles, we're seeing our patients, you know, two to three times watching their levels, watching that their lining's thickening up, giving them support and kind of getting them ready for their transfer. And sometimes we give patients medications and, and, Despite our best um, attempts, they're unable to make a, a decent lining. But what we find is when we don't bother them with these medications, they make a good lining. That would be a candidate for a natural embryo transfer cycle. So we kind of let your uterus do what it's going to do in the beginning. Right. We ovulate you so we can perfectly and precisely time that transfer. And then we will supplement you later on just because we know that we need to mildly supplement you just to make sure that the second part of the menstrual cycle is going as it should. Um, But the first part would be all entirely with you. But there's a little bit less that we can manage at that point. We're sort of following along with what your body does. But for a certain subset of patients, that's that's what they end up doing for a frozen embryo transfer cycle. 
Yeah, Monica, the natural cycles is really, really cool. Like you said, in the first part of the cycle, our patients are building a dominant follicle. And as that follicle gets big on their own, they're making their own estrogen. And that estrogen is going to their lining and thickening it up. And like you said, sometimes they do better letting their own estrogen, their own body doing it. And like you said, then we trigger them, we do their luteal support, and they do just great. So another tool, as you'd say in the toolbox. So we do that, you know, at the time of transfer, our, in our center, our nurses will call our patients and we set up the time for the transfer. Um, they're all completely timed. We know their time because sometimes our patients are doing ERAs, but we want a certain amount of progesterone um, for their transfer. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, acupuncture and a full bladder at the time of transfer is so important because that bladder being full tips your uterus in a good position so we can put that abdominal ultrasound on your belly and see really nicely where your lining is. And we can watch the embryo transfer catheter go into the cervix and into the uterus. We can watch the embryo being plunged into the lining. It's really, really cool. And acupuncture potentially helps, you know, get some good blood supply to that lining and get you relaxed and get you in, in a good mood and meet with our acupuncturists who are really amazing. And a lot of times it's that relaxation, Monica, before transfer and after with our acupuncturists that may do the trick. We don't know. Again, I've never heard somebody say they wish they didn't do acupuncture right. um, ever, but if you're unable to afford it or you don't have the time for it, it's fine if it's something you're able to afford and you do have the time. It's really recommended, not just in studies for maybe relaxing smooth muscle, maybe increasing blood flow to the reproductive organs, but also just, you know, what we talked about last time, like your mindset, your coping, your relaxation. It can help maybe help the bladder fill a little bit quicker, which, as you said, is really important. Um, the other reason we like the bladder to fill is we do an abdominal ultrasound probe to make sure the embryo is going in the right spot. And we really need that bladder filling it for contrast for that abdominal ultrasound us to be able to see. And then the only other word I want to talk about is the word luteal. So luteal is the second part of the menstrual cycle. It is the word that we use after ovulation. So luteal phase support means the second part of the menstrual cycle and usually and often includes estrogen, but always includes progesterone. Right. And so that's when we talk about luteal phase support or luteal phase, we're talking about the second part of the menstrual cycle. Right. You know, for the physicians, the transfer is a really big moment and for our patients. And that's a time when we want everything to go perfect. Um, and, you know, when our patients come in, remember, everyone is identified heavily. And like Monica said, you will look at paperwork, you're going to identify, you're going to sign off, you're going to see your picture of your embryo, you're going to see your embryo um, being loaded into a little embryo transfer catheter, which is a thin, uh, very thin, malleable uh catheter that's going to be placed into the uterus, into the uterine cavity, kind of like what we did for the saline sonogram. Um, now, as the COVID is regulations are kind of cooling down, we have partners with our patients coming in to give support and to watch. And, you know, remember the chance of an embryo surviving the thaw is very, 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 very high. It is kind of rare-ish for an embryo not to survive the thaw, but it can happen. If that happens, then we'll thaw you another embryo. Um, so the transfer is a big moment. Monica, and we have, a, you know what I, you know, what's really cool is we have amazing medical assistants who come into the room with us who ultrasound, like you said, abdominally and watch us and help us bring that catheter into perfect position into the uterine cavity. And they are so good. They are there for encouragement. They're there to support our patients and they're there to support the physician. And we have our embryologists who come into the room and identify and introduce themselves. It's a big moment. And for me, Monica, that's the culmination. One we never culmination. get sick of seeing that, right? We never get sick of seeing that. Oh, no, it's no. So super cool. And it doesn't hurt. You know, sometimes the saline sonogram or sonogram, that pressure of the fluid can create a cramping. The, the transfer doesn't hurt. I always tell people the worst feeling in the transfer is that you feel like you have to pee. Because right. you do, you have to pee. So that's the worst feeling. You're so full. Um, but in terms of pain or discomfort, there's none. You eat and drink normally that day. There's no anesthesia. You take your morning dose of everything that day. Um, it's just a, a regular day. Then you go home that evening. You kind of just lay low. You, you'll rest for 20 minutes in um, the OR. And then you get to go home. And we tell you more for peace of mind to reduce activity. So people go to work the next day after transfer. What we 
don't want at the day of the pregnancy test is for you to have regrets. So I have a lot of clients that do health coaching that exercise on a regular basis and like, what should I be doing? And I'm like, you can continue with the walking. We don't want you to do particular ab or core exercises. We don't want you to get too hot. Um, and does that mean that people that do ab and core exercises and go running aren't going to get pregnant? No. But when we're talking about what you should do and the investment that you've already made in that cycle, we want you, regardless of your pregnancy test result, to not look back and be like, you know what? I wish I wouldn't have done this. I have this regret that I did that. So we're just being incredibly conservative. There's no research that I know of unless uh, there's something else that supports being on bed rest for days or not getting up or doing anything for days. It's just really stay hydrated and listen to your body. Yeah, I agree. I was just thinking the same thing. I would... if. I think staying hydrated is important. And like you said, people are getting pregnant out there in the real world and they're moving around. So after your transfer, you know, you can move around and and do what you feel comfortable doing, but don't do bed rest because it's not going to help you. Right. And it just is one more thing that feels um, like an outlier in your life. You know, it's just that that particular day is fine, but to be on bed rest the next day is just one more thing that makes you feel like you're doing something that feels artificial or doing something that feels like you wouldn't normally do, which is not what we don't want you to do in the midst of a cycle is to feel that way. No, not at all. And then nine to nine to 11 days later, we check a pregnancy test. Definitely very, very stressful. And I talk to a lot of patients and they feel like waiting from after the transfer to that pregnancy test is really, really strong. As awful. We both have a patient in common who's waiting for her test on Monday. Um, but it's, but p- the waiting is complicated for people. Yes, the waiting is complicated. And that's where we get back into that, what we talked about last time, those coping mechanisms, those strategies, those things that don't have to do with running, vigorous exercise, drinking a glass of wine, these things that we would do when we kind of just feel like we need to take the edge off. And so identifying them before this time can really help. And we touch base with you and we want you to touch base with us. But if that nine to 11 days feels like 20, yeah, I mean, it just feels super long and super stressful. And part of it is because you're not in the office, you're not seeing us anything happening. You're just sitting there waiting for it to happen. And that that's uh, stressful. So should you become pregnant, you would stay on those medications until the placenta kicks in, which um, takes a couple of weeks and we're able to identify with your blood results but then if you're not pregnant, um, then you would stop your medications. And so you and I kind of have answered this question a couple of times, but I feel like it's important enough to answer here. What are your thoughts about why somebody would not get pregnant when they have a PGS tested euploid embryo? You know, it's a very difficult, it's a difficult question. You know, when, when our patients are putting in embryos that have not been tested, we usually feel that, you know, you didn't get pregnant potentially because that embryo wasn't genetically normal. And that which is the most common reason, most right? Common for infantile failure or pregnancy loss. Yeah, and especially first trimester. Yeah, and depending upon someone's age, it's more likely someone gets older. But when we've tested these embryos and we've told you with high likelihood that this embryo is basically 46 chromosomes and we put it in and it doesn't work, that that's 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 difficult. Um, you know, and so a normal embryo, which is 46 chromosomes, and we put it in, why doesn't it work? Was the timing of the transfer right? We're going to talk about ERA next. Was the embryo really good? So we're taking six of those trophectoderm cells, those cells on the outside that make the placenta. But what about the inner cell mass or the fetal component? We're biopsying the outer placenta cells, which we're saying are normal. But what happens if there's some other cells somewhere else that are not normal? Because remember, these embryos are dividing. So the embryo could be mosaic. And you know, there's more to an embryo than just being 46 chromosomes you know, or 23 pairs. You and that's have, what I tell people. Yeah. I think that's difficult. So the, so a fully prepared endometrial lining, right? That's that uh, estrogen primed progesterone, perfect, perfected right. lining. And what would they call competent blastocyst have a relationship. They have a communication. So the endometrium or the endometrial lining doesn't just let any old thing in, doesn't let viruses in, doesn't let bacteria in. So there has to be a signal from what's called a competent blast to say, let me in, let me into these protective cells. So there's a communication, there's a relationship. And what goes on in that relationship and communication isn't always something we can measure. And so I tell people all the time, we, uh, you know, know what looks good on paper. There are nuances and complexities and things that we just, and substances secreted that even when, when we look at a picture of implantation, and there's some of these words that I can't even pronounce that are available there. And it's really an inflammatory process, which I don't think people realize either, um, is there's a lot of stuff that goes on besides just competent blastocysts 
and, and uterine lining. And these are things that keep us from not being able to measure or manipulate these substances or this communication of this process is what keeps all the centers from having 100% success rate right now. I mean, we're actively learning and chipping away at that. We're up to 70%, which I never thought we would be at. I don't Incredible. know, like 20 years ago, it was much, much different. But um, it still keeps us from even with a good blastocyst and a lining that should be conducive to implantation um, from having 100% success rate. Right. And it's just this untouchable sort of unquantifiable. It drives us crazy. Like you said, there's great signaling between the lining and the endometrium and the embryo to make it all happen. And uh, we're kind of stuck a little bit in the 70% range. Um and, you know, the embryo has an energy source as mitochondria, and there's things that we're testing now, but there's more things that down the road we'll be able to understand. So we're looking at things in 2021, but what is it going to look like in 2030? And what's the testing going to look like? It may be very different. I mean, I'm excited for that. We, I would say every five years, something some great. amazing advance comes through that really revolutionizes, um, you know, the, uh, the reproductive endocrine field. So ICSI. Yeah. I think it's probably 20 years old. Was it 1980-ish, I think? Yeah. Um, oh, it's, then it's way more than 20 years old. It's incredible. Right. That's why I kind of threw out there, threw it out there like on a Nobel Prize. And, and you know, Monica and I have two more things we want to talk about. Monica, I'm going to take your lead on the lining and kind of jump into ERA. And then we're going to talk about embryo transfer number. You know, like you said, there's cool things that come down the road. So we've talked about them, embryo testing. Now we're getting into well- are we putting embryos back in at the right time? So this ERA, endometrial receptivity assay, which is becoming really hot. And it's basically another tool to help us know the best time to put your embryo in. And we do them mostly, not always, in a frozen embryo transfer scenario. And we want to basically find out if we're putting in if we can put in an embryo for you at the perfect time, the perfect window of implantation. Really cool Great. stuff. So we, the window of implantation for women is pretty narrow. There's only a certain amount of time uh, each month, um, usually within two days, where that uterine lining will accept uh, the implantation of a blastocyst, and that's called the window of implantation. And so for a long time, it was assumed that on a 28-day cycle, this window of implantation occurred day 19, 20, or 21. That's just what we thought. So that's how we plan transfers. Um but what we found in research, once the Human Genome Project came out, we were able to identify, you know, at molecular level proteins and, and mRNA and these things that happen at the actual lining of the uterus in people who have uh, receptive linings for implantation. Now that we're able to identify those substances, we're able to see then the other tests for, for um, endometrial receptivity were really indirect, so progesterone level. Well, all that tells us is that right. your progesterone level is good. An endometrial biopsy without this test tells us, well, your cell looks like a day 18, like it should be a day 18 on a cycle. That doesn't tell us if it's going to accept. An embryo tells us it looks like a day 18 on a regular menstrual cycle. But now we can look at the proteins and are those proteins uh, that are there for receptivity or receptive, what they found in studies, receptive uh, endometrial linings, are they present in you? And so this is a separate cycle. Um, and it's done um, through many different labs. But at this particular cycle, we do, we set up like we would with a frozen embryo transfer cycle. And then on that day, uh, that particular day that we would normally do a transfer, we do a biopsy. And then we send your cells out. And then we wait for those results. And that comes back either pre-receptive, receptive, or post-receptive. And what that means is we, you might need more or less days of progesterone. Your implantation window might be day 17 through 19 but we would never know that if right. we didn't do this. So we offer it. This original studies were done on people who had something called recurrent implantation failure. So they weren't done on anyone that was going through this. The research is based on people who either had losses or didn't get pregnant on multiple cycles. Right. And what they found is in 25% of the women who had recurrent implantation failure, that their window of receptivity was off. Correct. So what that tells us is that it's a very small subset uh, population. So we we will talk about it to everybody, but not everybody gets it because really the implication is you get it if you have a recurrent implantation. Failure. That being said, people know about it. People are like, look, I want to know everything that's available for me to optimize my cycle. And if we give you the information about it and it's something that you would like to do 
and strongly consider, we can talk to you about that. But the original research was on the people with recurrent implantation failure. And that's why you, it's something you may not have had in the past or had done. But it's really given us a lot of information in terms of what is your particular, and they call it personalized embryo transfer yeah. or PET. Yeah, this is interesting. It's kind of like two questions you kind of bring up, Monica, is who's choosing to do an ERA? Um, that's one question which we're going to get to. And the other thing, like you said, patients are doing like a mock cycle. They're doing their estrogen, their progesterone. And on the exact day that they would do their transfer, regularly they'll come in. We do a biopsy. Like you said, it takes two seconds. Doesn't really hurt. Big pinch, though. And we send off those cells to find out if we had put in the embryo at that time was it the right time? And so we're looking at 248 genes that are involved with implantation. And once we get back that result from that biopsy, oh, a week and a half later, we'll know that when we do it again, get your estrogen going, your progesterone going, we're, how do we do it? Do we give you more progesterone? Do we give you less? Or were you perfect in that mockery receptive that will copy the exact same thing? So like you said, it's personalized. Um, I think they're really cool. You know, we're finding that maybe three in 10 women have, like you said, you know, displaced window of implantation. It's very, it's a slippery slope, Monica. We definitely have patients who have implantation failure who want to do it. We have patients who have, let's say, just one embryo. Hey, doc, I have one embryo. I want to make sure that I'm putting it in at the right time. It's interesting. I, you know, it potentially increases live birth rates and maybe we're going to be doing this ERAs on a lot of patients. You yeah, know I, mean? I think it's important it's to happen. note that the original research was on a specific yeah. subset of people, but does that mean everybody shouldn't get it or everybody should be offered Most it? Not people, necessarily. Huh? It's just as long as you know that the science that's based and we are science-based was on a particular subset. Right. But let's say that there was somebody that went through with a donor embryo that te you know, theoretically should be good. Let's say somebody went through with a PGS tested euploid embryo and didn't get pregnant. This might be a reasonable next step because we talked about a competent blast and a receptive endometrium. We assume it's receptive. Absolutely. Because the ultrasound measurement was good like we talked about and the lining was thick, but really these are all indirect measurements. And until we are able to identify these genes that you discussed, which was relatively recent, we didn't have the technology to do this testing and now we do. It's incredible. It's really exciting. It's an interesting. A lot of our, I would assume now all of our gestational carriers are doing the ERA before they put in embryos because we really want to know the exact timing. Um, this also begs a question on, do your, are your patients asking you about number of embryos to transfer? Not as much as they used I know. to. So our preference is always single embryo transfer, and particularly if you have a euploid embryo. Agreed. Because I think the thought was more is better. Let's put more in right. to give us a better chance. But really, more is just more now, we're finding. Um, right. So what are your thoughts if somebody wants to? Well, first of all, we never do more than two. We I never do ever. more than two. You know, you and I have talked a lot about the 2017 guidelines from ASRM. And basically, like you said, if you have a euploid embryo, you're supposed to put in one. Why? Because it doesn't matter your age. If you have a euploid embryo, you should do really well because in quotes, the uterus is an aging and we know this embryo is 46 chromosomes and let's set you up for a single healthy pregnancy. And basically, um, putting in a single embryo, chance of a twin is what, 1%. And we all know if you put in two embryos that have been tested, your twin rate could climb up to potentially 50%. And now you're setting yourself up for preterm delivery, preterm labor, diabetes, preeclampsia, cesarean section, and early delivery. So with PGT embryos, we have almost everyone putting in one, but people who have not tested embryos, um, depending upon their age, they, they'll put in one almost always, but sometimes two. Depends. With a lot of discussions, like you've said, it's all discussions. And, you know, I, I think it is really important to note. So um, I understand that people want to complete their family in one try right. because it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of money. And the thought of being able to have twins is seems really great at that point. But I can tell you that I review a lot of the records for people that are going to be gestational carriers. So healthy young women who um, arguably are not subfertile and twin pregnancies come with a lot of risks. And especially as you age, now you have the age and the risk all the, for all those that you mentioned. And often with preeclampsia is gestational diabetes, like it's evil stepsister, right? So now you have two things that you're dealing with. Right. And what that means is prematurity of baby or babies. 
You also, maybe they might share a placenta, maybe they might share a sac. So really there's a lot of, we have to really take that into account. And so we know people want to complete their families because of what you've been through so far. But um, what we found and what we're finding over time is that one embryo back is really the safest for everybody. And then hopefully you have some to freeze so that you can get pregnant on a subsequent cycle with a sibling without having to kind of go through the injections again. Um, but we really are taking your safety and the safety of your baby into account when we do when we when we suggest or really highly recommend the one embryo transfer. We understand though that having two back just seems great, but after you talk to us, I think we can probably convince you otherwise. I think Monica, you said that beautifully. Patients still try to push us to put in two, but like you said, it's really it's really the healthiest, safest way to put in one. Um, and what we're seeing a lot is, is this concept of banking embryos. So patients who, before they do their first embryo transfer, they like to have, you know, a couple embryos frozen so that they can put in one. Now, if they're successful, they start their family building. And then when they deliver and the coast is clear and everything's safe and they're done breastfeeding, they can then use another one of those embryos. A lot of our patients I'm seeing now, Monica, if they do an IVF cycle and they're doing embryo testing and they only have one normal embryo, sometimes they'll want to do another IVF cycle to try to get another embryo or two. So they have like a grouping ready to go and then jump into a transfer cycle. They yeah, the most common right? question I get asked on that, is there any reason to wait to do banking and medical reason? And what I tell people is, unless you have your ovaries are still big from that previous cycle, or you have leftover cysts or follicles, um, or you had some kind of hyperstimulation, you can do it with a subsequent cycle. Absolutely. And sometimes people have that momentum already. Energy. Yeah. Yeah. You may do an ERA cycle in the meantime. And although people are like, I don't want to pause for that cycle. I've had a lot of people like, I'm so glad that I did that because I wanted to feel like I was doing something that was that led to an outcome that could be helpful to me. I either knew or re- knew we needed to change something or knew what we were doing was right. right. And so I think that that is a very important. The other thing is, is if you have extra embryos to freeze, they are paused at the your year at which they were made. So if you wait two years to go back, we know the uterus doesn't age except in long intervals, not in short intervals. So those embryos are paused then at that genetic age. Um, and embryos are a lot hardier than eggs. It's so popular to be banking embryos. Mm-hmm. Really, I, I, we're seeing it a lot. Um, what else? Any closing remarks you have? What I would say is, is um, you know, NIAW is, is a cool week, so we're celebrating that this week. Um, anything you want to add on what you're seeing in your clients or anything cool out there? Um, I guess the only thing I want to say is really kind of underscoring what I said the first uh episode or first part of the podcast, um, first podcast, the one that we did last week, and it's to really know yourself. And so what I tell people when they get their pregnancy test result is there's a, there's a, there's a lot of ways in this cycle that you can have some choice. So, you know, when your pregnancy test is, but I say to them, do you want, is it, let's say that there's a teacher and she has free time at a certain time. Then do you want me to call you during that free time? Do you want me to call you at the end of your day within reason, obviously, if it's still a work day, do you want a message left? Do you want us to talk to your husband? You know, think about that. How do you want? How do you want to be notified? What kind of communication is best for you? Like I said, in terms of knowing yourself, that's so important in the cycle, and we want to be able to give you choices uh, where we can. The other thing I do want to mention, as a nurse has done this for a long time, is I am highly. Um, it's it's very important for me, for you to know that if I give you a negative pregnancy result, that I am heartbroken for you. And, um, and I know you are too, Dr. Richland. So well, I'm going to tell sometimes you when we talk on the phone, too. yes, we sometimes might feel, we might seem that we're not, but we always are. It's just that sometimes you need time to digest that re- answer. Or we, and what I usually do is give somebody the information, let's say it's negative and then say, is it okay if I contact you in a day or two? Of course you can reach me. But is it okay once you've had a chance that I contact you and just see how you are? Because you need to process it. And I know, I am acutely aware that I am changing your the whole tone of your day, week, month. And I don't take that position lightly. None of us do. So when we give you your result, we are rejoicing when it's positive and we feel devastated when it's negative. But we, we don't give up on you. And we never take our responsibility in that phone call lightly. So regardless of how we are on the phone, if we're anything less than 
compassionate or kind. It's due to our own discomfort and the fact that we're giving you bad news and we feel so terrible about it because we have such a, a, a strong relationship with you. I agree. I feel devastated too. And so, um, and I know all the pregnancy tests that are happening every single day and I watch for them. So all, we, all I know you long. are too. We are I like love. refreshing, yep. refreshing. Yep. When the labs, things yep. come in, we're refreshing, refreshing. We're, everybody's like walking around. Is Jane yep. Doe yep. pregnant? What's happening? The medical assistants, we are all so invested. We're so in, invested. In and I'm going to tell you a secret. Sometimes we cheat in the morning if someone comes in for a, with a blood. I shouldn't be saying this. My partners are going to kill me. But if, if we've taken blood from you and we're going to send it to the lab to get what's called a beta HCG, we can take that sample and we spin it first. To send it to the lab, we can take a little of the serum and put it on a urine pregnancy test and I can cheat. And I will know within minutes. And when I put that drop on there and it's positive, I am so happy. If it's not, Monica, my day could be ruined. And the reason why is because so many of our patients have done so much and they've put so much energy and they want it so bad. We want it so bad. And it just is so frustrating, but you know, we're going to go back to the drawing board. I was going to say, we're already, so we, after we get over that initial devastation, oh my God. we're already thinking next steps. You're already collaborating with your partners or nurses stuff up or like, like, with a fine tooth comb going over previous cycles, embryology records, any information that we have, because we know the next time something, like, what can we do differently? And we want to try to be prepared with that information. And sometimes that's why you may not hear from your physician as well for a couple of days, one, to let you process the news. And two, it's to actually go through this and give you information that might be helpful in a subsequent phone call. Yeah. I, I think for me, the most devastating is if we get a negative pregnancy test and, or if we don't have embryos to biopsy, but um, yes, but you know, it's, we go back to the drawing board, and we can make it happen if we just be persistent. Yes, yes, we don't. We, we do not give up. No, so there's no giving up, and and that's we are relentless. It, we are I, relentless, I would say, and and proudly so. <laughs> yeah, it's our all of us in reproductive medicine are tireless in getting one thing, and that's your goal, and making you happy along the way. Yes, and we're chipping away at that seventy to hundred percent that. 30% difference in why we can get people pregnant continuously chipping away. So right. hopefully and, the next time we talk, we'll have some other information. And like you said, that chipping away, you know, is it pre-pregnancy lifestyle? Is it going to be a supplement? Is it going to be genetics? Is it going to be something in the cavity lining? Is it going to be another way to test embryos? Guess what? The story will be told through the next years. So it's so exciting. And that's what keeps you and I absolutely fascinated. Yeah, we love it. We love it. Okay. So thank you very much, Monica. Listening to you talk is like listening to an opera. You are absolutely perfect. <laughs> I've never heard that. Yeah. And what you say, and, and I'm so happy that the listeners got to hear you and, and got the, to, to enjoy speaking and hearing. Well, we're speak. so, I'm so happy to be here. And if there ends up being a flurry of questions after this episode, then we'll end up doing a Q and a or people ask question one yeah. at some point. We may be doing down the road um, some more discussions on lifestyle. So that's something mm -hmm. me and Monica will keep in the bag and we'll yeah, throw you're both passionate about that. Yeah. Yeah. So remember, thank you very much. You can follow Monica on her website at fertilehealthexpert.com. Check her out. And you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Spencer Rich on Facebook and Pinterest. Feel free to email me with any questions. We'd love to hear from you. And after this episode, you can DM either one of us and we will get back to you. And we want to thank you very much for listening today.